Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you today. We're going to find ourselves in the book of Proverbs, beginning a series on biblical wisdom. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite uh, invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 22 through 23. This is God's Word. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me take a moment and pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we gather our scattered senses and we turn our attention to your word and we hear uh, in your word that if we turn to you, that you will pour out your spirit to us and make your words known to us. And so will you make yourself known to us this morning by your spirit? We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So today we're starting a new series, a series on biblical wisdom. It'll take us all the way through the summer, and throughout we're going to dip our toes in a lot of the different biblical wisdom books. But we're going to begin our series in the book of Proverbs. Uh, And the theme of our series uh, through Lent will be this. To become wise, you first have to learn to spot foolishness. You have to name it. You have to see it. And the most important place to spot the fool is in yourself. Part of the reason why Proverbs was written was to help us identify the foolish tendencies that exist in our hearts. And it has a number of ways of pointing out foolishness, but one of the ways it does that is by giving each type of foolishness a name. And we read about these uh, in our passage this morning. We read about the simple, the fool, the scoffer, and later on we'll encounter the sluggard. These characters are all over the place on the book, in the book of Proverbs, and as we read about them and interact with them, a kind of profile for each begins to emerge that allows us to put ourselves, our words, and our ways, and we can compare them against the words and the ways of the simple, the scoffer, the sluggard, and the stubborn one. Ultimately, so that we can hopefully make room for the wise one. 
Now, all of these characters or tendencies exist in all of our hearts. It is also my contention that we, each person typically gravitates towards one kind of fool more than another. And so you can kind of think of this sermon series a little bit like a really fun personality test. And so there are personality test junkies out there. You know your strengths, your five strengths. You know your Myers-Briggs. You know whether you're a Labrador or a lion or a giraffe or whatever the other animals are. You know what number you are on the Enneagram. And when you started to figure that out, you were like... Am I, it looks like witchcraft when you look at the little picture there. You don't know exactly what you're doing, but you've taken the tests and you've gained some wisdom from them, some, elf, some self-understanding. You know that you have a, a certain combinations of strengths and you've put yourself in situations as a result. Well, I want to say that you have a certain combination of, of foolishness. And weakness, inner attitudes, patterns of thoughts, and decision-making that often run you into dead ends. Often make you feel like a, a fool. Often keep you from growing in the ways that God wants you to grow. And when we can see it, and name it, and understand it, it can set us up to be wise. So my prayer for us this Lent is that we can learn to name our fool, repent of him or her, and with Christ's help, mercy, and love, learn to grow a little more in wisdom. And so today we start by looking at the simple, the simple heart. How should we think about the simple. Well, in Proverbs 1, chapter 4, Solomon is talking about the purpose of the book of Proverbs. And he says one of the primary purposes of the book is to, quote, give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Now, in Hebrew poetry, the first and second lines of a verse are put in parallel. They correspond to one another in some way. And so in that verse, the word simple corresponds or is parallel to the word youth. And sometimes that's how the word simple is used, simply to describe an actual child. Someone who is young, but has not yet gained wisdom. Now it should be said that children have a childlike wisdom of their own, which is why our Savior said we should become like a child to enter into the kingdom of God. But there is also a a childish naivety, an impressionable an impressionableness to a child. They can easily get themselves into trouble because of choices that they make, which seem innocent to them, but can bring a lot of pain. <laughs> into their lives. But the simpleness of a child isn't a problem. It's natural. It's something that with proper care and training and a lot of mercy from God, 
They can learn to grow as they're taught. But look at Proverbs 122. It comes from our passage this morning. It says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? Now think about that. It's not saying, How long, children, will you continue to be children? That doesn't make sense. There is a form of foolishness called simple, and where it's, it's where childishness or adolescence proceeds into adulthood, meaning that there is a naivete that's present in an adult that only really makes sense in the life of a child. But it's foolish when you're 42. And that's what's in mind of Solomon in chapter 1. How long will it take for you to grow up? How long will it take for you to learn wisdom before you leave not this childlikeness, but this childishness behind? How long before wisdom wins? So how does this childish nature manifest itself? Answer, in chronic openness. If you had one verse to remember, to remember who the simple are, it would be Proverbs 14, 15. Proverbs 14, 15 says this, the simple believes everything. But the prudent give thoughts to their steps. They believe everything. The simple heart is chronically open. And that's what the word means in Hebrew. It means openness. And what we'll see in future weeks that wisdom requires an open mind to some degree. We don't want to be closed off to criticism or to be wisdom. We don't want to be stuck in our own ways. We don't want to be quick to judge, close to reason or alternative perspectives. We'll find next week that the fool or the stubborn is actually too closed. But it's also possible to be too open. Open to a fault. So wonderfully open that you never close a door to anyway, anything. You never make up your mind. You never choose a team. You never take a stand. You would ever, never say no or stop to anything, even if it's unwise. That would seem mean. What we'll see is that chronic openness is rooted in a heart that wants to avoid hardship or conflict at any cost. Hardship, suffering, self-denial, criticism, conflict, negative emotions, that's not good for the simple heart. The hard thing about that is that all of those things are required if you want to be wise. 
You have to go through suffering, hardship. You have to receive a critical word. You have to learn some self-denial. Learn how to do conflict well. Engage with the cost of life and living in a broken world. So how does this all play out in the life of the simple? Well, Proverbs 22.3 says this, The prudent see danger and they hide themselves. But the simple goes on and suffers for it. So what is that saying? It's saying that in our simplicity and naivete, we don't like to call things dangerous. That seems over the top. A little mean. And we don't want to be mean. Uh, We'd like to avoid suffering and difficulty as much as we can. Because, you know, it'll be fine. And so we forego the kind of thought and naming that goes along with wisdom. We don't want to name something as dangerous, wrong, or bad. And so we go on and we suffer for it. No door is ever closed, even the door that obviously leads to the wrong path. So if you want to learn about the simpleton, I'd have you go home this afternoon and read Proverbs chapter 7. We don't have enough time to go through it right now, but it is about an individual, a simple individual who is seduced into a relationship that destroys their life. And an adulterous temptation, which really stands for all temptation. But the question is, how did the simple get to temptation in the first place? And the answer of the passage is, it was so predictable and avoidable. He goes out at night to the wrong side of town basically gets as close to temptation's house as they possibly can. It's like watching the horror movie and the person is running away from the serial killer and thinks, I know, I'll hide in the dark shed with all the chainsaws. That's the safest place to be. So avoidable. The danger. Where's the wise in Proverbs chapter 7? Looking at this behind locked doors at night. They just know what happens on that road at that time of night. The simple just says never, they never say no to a path. Even when that path has led them to the same place time and time again. Consider the wisdom of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. That sounds a little over the top to the simple. Whoa, come on, Jesus. 
It's a little extreme, don't you think, to go without the smartphone? I mean, this, this internet, it's led me to all kinds of terrible places. But boundaries? I don't think so. To, to not be in that relationship, even though that relationship has caused so much destruction and pain. The prudent see danger. They hide themselves. The simple go on and suffer for it. They never say no to a path. And when they do choose a path, they find it's hard to stick to it until the end. Proverbs 132. For the simple are killed by their turning away. Now what is that saying? It's saying that the simple give up before it gets good. They give up on the spiritual discipline before it gets good. They give up on the small group before it gets good. They give up on the marriage before it gets good. And why do they give up? Because it gets hard before it gets good. The parable uses the image of a journey, a wisdom journey, or a faith journey. And they're on the path, and they know the path, and they've taken a few steps even on the path, but they're like a child who never sits still. They never stick with the thing long enough to actually make any real progress. They don't lack knowledge. They lack courage, perseverance, endurance. The minute there's hardship, you hit the escape button. Choose a different path. And as a result, they aren't committed to a path long enough for knowledge to turn into wisdom. For knowledge to turn into belief. For what they experience to be forged into character. Using Eugene Peterson's famous prose, There's no long obedience in the same direction. Because that would require long suffering. That would require you to be bored. That would require frustration. Pushing through a hard moment. Why do that when it's easier to jump ship? To jump churches. To stop the practice. It just kills them. We should note that every single metaphor in the New Testament for sanctification is a hard and long metaphor. Becoming like Jesus is hard. It's a hard process. And it's a slow process. It's a seed that goes into the ground and dies. It's a marathon that you have to run and work through the hard times. It's a tree planted through all kinds of seasons by water. It's a vine that has to take time to grow. It's all slow. (laughs) It takes time. And we know this from experience. 
that the best things in life take time. Ecclesiastes 7.8 says, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Eugene Peterson says it this way, Staying put is better than standing out. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 says this, So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Jesus just says it this way, By your endurance, you will gain life. The simple hasn't learned that lesson yet. In the same way, the simple heart hasn't learned how critical criticism is to our growth and to the growth of those around them. So a couple of famous proverbs here. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Oil and perfume make the heart glad And the sweetness of a friend comes from their earnest counsel. A true friend says what you need to hear when you need to hear it. That is why my wife is my true friend. She always tells me when I have a monkey in the brow, a boogie in the nose. When I cook something and she doesn't like it, She tells me she doesn't like it. When my sermon is too long, it is very clear to me that my sermon was too long. It should be said she also says nice things about me. But she is my true friend. And though it often, if I'm, if I'm honest, it always hurts. Like I don't want to have a booger in my nose. I want everybody to like what I cook all the time. I want my wife to think my sermons are rad. And so when she says it, it's like, it's not like it feels great, but I need to hear it. The naive or simple find it hard to give critical feedback. So they will let someone suffer on a wrong path for a long time. If they're leading a team, they find it really hard to let someone go. Even when it's obvious this is, a, this is a bad fit for them, it's a bad fit for us. Simple doesn't want to make that hard choice. The simple will just, ah, it's not as bad. It'll, it'll clear up at some point. And as much as they don't like to give feedback, they avoid the kinds of friends and, and language that would challenge them. They avoid warnings, challengings. They orient their spiritual life around prosperity preachers, sound bit sermons, and podcasts that just affirm what they want to hear. They prefer flattery. They have not learned Proverbs 27.6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, 
but an enemy multiplies kisses. Man, it's hard for the simple. And I know, I got a simple heart. It's hard. Hard to stick to a path. Hard to say no. Hard to give criticism. Hard to receive it. Ultimately, it's just hard to take a stand. It's all a part of kind of keeping your options open. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The simple heart says neither yes nor no. It says whatever. It's more like the double-minded person of James chapter 1 and Psalms 119, which wavers between opinions. Now, it should be said that whatever is cool in some circumstances. It is very appropriate and wise at a party if somebody's like, what kind of pizza should we get? Valentino's pizza or Vic's pizza? There you don't take your stand. An appropriate response there is, whatever. It can get a little annoying when you're on a date. Hey, where would you like to eat? I don't know. Where would you like to eat? Whatever, I don't know. Where would you like to eat? But it gets really destructive when it's, what do you think about this issue, this cultural issue that's dividing the culture and could divide our household? Whatever. What do you think? What about you don't have an opinion about that? I don't don't know. What what, What do you think? Chronically open. So much so that you kind of feel like you're a chameleon. You don't reveal who you are because you don't really know who you are because you've never really taken a stand. Taking a stand feels mean. The simple feel mean all the time. Naming one idea or person as truer than another can feel unloving. Narrow, confining, mood-keeling. There is a way that you can hurt others by taking a stand all the time. And by the way you take your stand, we'll talk about that next week. But we do need to recognize that there's a way to hurt yourself and others by never standing in one place. By never providing direction or clarity for yourself or for others. And y'all, for people who work with me and for me, they all know that I know this in my own life. I never want to upset the apple cart. I am always seeking consensus at all costs. And so at this church, with a divisive issue, we will talk about it forever. And I will give different parties the impression that I agree with them. Partly because I'm somewhat convinced by the last person that I talked to. But as a leader, when you're at an impasse 
And you can never, after reasoning it out, thinking it out, praying it out, never just say, this is where we are, it never allows a group of people to move forward, to grow, to find wisdom, to find maturity. Eventually, you got to put your foot down on something solid rather than amorphous and stand there and move forward for the long haul. And that does close doors. It does limit options. It can raise the ire of some, but it allows the group to move forward, to keep things moving. The simple have a hard time putting their feet down on a rock. And so when you're around them, it feels like you're on sand, shifting sand. We're bringing it to a close now. People always like to know that, my wife especially. We're bringing it to a close. What's the golden thread that ties it all together? The inability to pray the to pay the price that wisdom costs. Maturity comes at a cost and the wise are willing to pay it. And that's true of so much in our life. It's like true of your diet. It's true of working out. It's true of mastering any kind of art or practice. It's also true about growing as a disciple of Jesus. It will cost us something. Time, commitment, comfort, sacrifice, self-denial. But it will be worth it because Jesus is the rock. Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. There's a kind of heart that hears that and like, yes! The simple heart struggles with that verse. The only way? Is there more than one way? But Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise person who builds their house on a rock and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. We followed the Jesus who said, whoever would follow me must deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. The simple can be tempted to create an image of Jesus that's created in their own simple image. A naive portrait of Jesus who never would ask you to do anything you don't want to do. Who would never say no. Who would never say that way is dangerous, who would never put up a boundary here or a boundary there. But then we just read the Gospels, and we see that Jesus had convictions. 
He said, yes. He said, no. He said, I like that. (laughs) And I don't like that. We read that Jesus had capacity to enter into the cost of life. He knew what it was like to deal with negative emotions, to feel foul feelings, to confront temptation, to practice self-denial, and to suffer for the sake of wisdom and love. The hope for the simple isn't in our commitment to Christ or in our commitment to the long path of obedience. Our hope is in Christ's commitment to us and the one who is so committed for the long haul, for our good and our salvation. Jesus is not naive at all. He loves us and he died for all of our simple ways and he died to put us on the path of wisdom which includes the cross. Following him, associating with him will cost us something. And I grew up in a generation that in its simplicity thought that it shouldn't be that way. I grew up in a generation that, that came to age reading Relevant Magazine. We read Blue Like Jazz. We explored the emergent church movement. We celebrated indie Christian bands that rejected the label Christian band. And they played in, in bars and trendy cafes. This wasn't your parents' Christianity, folks. We got cool tattoos and began edgy nonprofits. We go to therapy and talk about it. We made good art, and a lot of good came out of it. A renewed evangelical impulse to justice, creation care, culture making. But somewhere along the way, when we were sipping our homemade kombucha and listening to Over the Rhine, we picked up the belief that you could live the life of Jesus in such a way that no one would ever get upset about it. That we could make it by the way we lived, appealing so that we would never be at odds with the world. And that left my generation in particular unprepared to know how to respond to the real rejection of orthodox belief no matter how winsomely you live it out. And that's a bit naive. In reality... What is appealing to people is Jesus and grace. And not everybody thinks that's cool. The gospel has always been foolishness to the world. And it's good and wise to remember that. Still, I would argue that we live in a naive world. A super flaky world where everybody's just got their toes dipped into eight million different things and doesn't feel like anything's solid. So in the end, what I think the world will actually respect isn't flakiness, but actual commitment. A a church committed 
for the long haul to actually live out the way of Jesus. Not the way of like conservative Jesus or progressive Jesus. The actual way of Jesus. I think that will be attractive to people. And so the last question, and this is the very last thing, Katie. How are you being asked to more fully commit yourself to the way of Jesus? Is there a path that you are being asked to stay on that you're tempted to leave? A conversation that you've wanted to have but haven't had it because you're scared of saying what needs to be said. Is there a pathway that you need to close that you keep gullibly going back to and hurting yourself? Pushing forward will mean counting the cost. And so Lent is a great season for the simple because it asks us to slow down and ponder our steps. It asks us to risk in self-discipline. To let go of immediate pleasures in terms of long-term rewards. It reminds us that the way up is the way down. And that to find my life, I need to lose it. It is a 40-day mini boot camp in what the long road of obedience looks like. And are we willing to push through temporary displeasures for greater joys? All the way, Jesus will be with us. Saving us, loving us. Listen, y'all, I just read my own mail. Uh, But Jesus didn't die because I go to R-rated movies. He died for me because of my simple heart. And we have a chance again to choose the path of wisdom. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of Proverbs and all it has to teach us. Thank you for these characters that walk through its pages. And uh, man, it's incriminating (laughs) to read about the simple heart because so many of us can see it in ourselves. And so first we just say thank you for dying for all of our simple ways. Uh, And thank you for never... Um, holding back uh, on the truth that true change, salvation, rescue, you know, we don't earn your love, but it does cost something to grow in all that you've purchased for us. So help us to count the cost and to take the next step and to find the the ways that you might be calling us to, to bear the cross and to follow you. Thank you that you're not simple at all. You are so committed to us. You never give up. You tell us what we need when we need to hear it. You take a stand on all the right things. Thank you, Lord, for not being naive at all, but being wisdom for us. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.